0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Betacade Podcast, where we talk with indie game industry professionals about their projects and gaming in general. Our first guest is Callan Shaw, an indie game developer from Northern Virginia. Callan has been developing games since learning Visual Basic in high school. One of his most successful games is Dream Cards. Its mobile version was honored as technically DC's Indie Game of the Year in 2016 most current project, VR Party Club, while still in development, has sold hundreds of copies in Steam Early Access. It's been selected for inclusion at DC WebFest, MacFest, AwesomeCon, District Arcade, where it won first place, and the Baltimore, Maryland Artscape, where it won the Gamescape Quick Play People's Choice Award in 2019. When he's not working on his indie game projects, he's making a living working for top interactive companies in the DC metro area, while at MediaRes for the past two years as lead game developer. He's made games for addiction prevention, infant safety, pain reduction, sleep health, young adult health, and more, specifically focusing on underserved and minority communities. Callan has served on the International Game Developer Association, DC, Chapter's board since 2016 and as board chair in 2017. He's also serves as vice chair for the IGDA Anti-Censorship and Social Issues Special Interest Group. He's also run the D.C. area meetup called Gaming in Public since 2016. His full bio can be found on the extended interview on the BetaKate blog at betak.com. It is there where you'll find all of today's show notes and where you can sign up for our newsletter, which reports on all of our activities each month. During this conversation, we discuss gaming in isolation. How Callan sold his first indie game nine months after he started learning about game development. How Half-Life Alex is paving the way for the VR genre. Games that are forever in beta and his answer to the lightning question of a game jam idea with the theme of Illumination. The more you have, the worse it is. That and much more. I'm excited to share with you Beta Kate's first podcast episode. Please enjoy our conversation with Callan Shaw. It is approximately nine oh nine PM, and we are both isolated in our house. Says, "How are you doing with isolation, sir?"
1: Oh man, it's been the time of my life. Finally, get to catch up <laughs> on video games for once instead of all the meetups I do. Right?
0: What are you playing right now?
1: Been playing way too much Animal Crossing. You know, I thought I would <laughs> kind of get bored with it real quick and uh, get some time with Half-Life Alex, yeah. but. I'm struggling to play Alex, and I'm just putting in probably eight hours a day on Animal Crossing.
0: That's really weird because of how deep in the VR you are. I would would think Alex would be sort of like something that you've been waiting for forever.
1: Oh, I mean, I love it. I mean, I'm not really into Half-Life. This is the first one I'll probably beat through. But I can beat Alex any time, and Animal Crossing has that horrible sort of mobile game loop of forcing you to play every day. So that gets priority.
0: My wife was looking at it for the Nintendo Switch. I don't know if she's going to get it or not. The Animal Crossing it is, of course. It's a lot of fun. I've seen some guy, uh, uh, a science teacher. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a clip on YouTube. If you type in science teacher and Half-Life, there's a science teacher. Oh, I did see that. It's hilarious. This guy. Doing the
1: math problems with the marker. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. If anyone hasn't seen this, there's like the very beginning of the game, you start in like this apartment. You're outside in this patio. When you walk inside to the left, there's all oh, there's nothing but glass on the left side, and then there's markers where you can grab and draw. And this one teacher has like a half hour or 45 minute video of a full geometry lesson that he sent to all his kids.
1: It's It's so crazy. It's like just a testament to how well built that game is.
0: Yeah, it's so like. Him grabbing the marker, he, he grabbed the eraser at one point, and it was grabbed incorrectly or weirdly. He let go of it, tossed it up, and, and caught it in the right position and erased something.
1: There's another uh, video I've seen making the rounds where someone's teaching you how to juggle in Half Life, Alex. <laughs> with pens, I assume, or I guess they found no. Some... I think maybe with bricks or rocks on the ground or something maybe That's cans weird. i didn't actually watch the video yet but i saw a screenshot and i was like i'm sure you can do that i mean when i was working on my game one of the first things my roommate did he's a big juggler and he was just like trying to juggle and he figured it out in a couple minutes
0: mm-hmm. wow all right so you said you're playing animal crossing now anything else before, maybe before isolation you were playing
1: I mean, that's my problem is I want to play all these games, but I end up just being so busy I don't get as much time. So isolation's be- really been good to me in that sense. I mean, I played through the new Pokemon game. It's okay. Nothing to write home about.
0: So we'll get into the bulk of the conversation here. So, sir, where did you originally grow up and how did you end up in Northern Virginia?
1: Um, I'm from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. But uh, after my parents divorced, I grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is about two hours east of that in central PA. Really boring place. I don't really suggest it. (laughs) And I went back to Pittsburgh for college. And while I was there, I met a girl. And after college, we moved together down to the D.C. area. Okay. And where you were, was that closer to D.C.? or? So she actually went to graduate school at Gallaudet because she is into deaf studies. And that's like one of the biggest schools in the country for deaf studies. Okay.
0: And one of the answers you gave to the little questionnaire I sent you, you said that you got into game development in what year was that in high school?
1: Oh, boy. I think that would have been either my sophomore or my junior year. I think it would have been my sophomore year.
0: And you said a friend showed you that you could actually make games. And then you ended up learning, making, and then selling a game all in one school year?
1: Yeah. Actually, I think it was I took my first visual basic class in the spring semester, spent all summer at home making this game. Mm. Because I I didn't even know some basics yet. Like, I didn't know how to do a for loop. So I have this code that's (laughs) all just if this, if this, if this, like 10 nesting levels deep. But I somehow managed to make a really awful, like turn-based RPG kind of thing with MS Paint graphics, and I sold it to my classmates the next uh, fall semester on floppy disks.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. A a lot of game de- developers that I talked to, a lot of them, you know, spend you know years making a game. And, I'm, and of course, you're in high school, you made like a smaller game. But it's, I think, it's kind of crazy to say that you learned it and then made a game and then sold a game in less probably less than a year would yeah you say?
1: probably about eight eight or nine months
0: interesting i guess you were juggling i guess at most of that time you're juggling like homework and other stuff or you just pretty much focused on that game
1: well i did most of the development during my summer break and so it was like i'd go out and skateboard with my friends in the afternoon come home when it got dark and uh, sit on the computer until bedtime is that game anywhere for us to play? Oh gosh, um, <laughs> probably on a hard drive in my closet somewhere, but it probably wouldn't even run on a computer <laughs> anymore because I did another game at the end of high school that I tried really hard to get running on Windows 10 and no matter what I do, it just won't run. It's a real break-in-my-heart kind of thing because mm-hmm. that thing was good. My RPG was not good. I would not want anyone to play it. But my like shmup <laughs> that I made, ah, oh, that was quality. Talk about that. You know, it was just basic uh, flying through. So all the graphics were procedural. Like I wrote code to draw lines to make a triangle ship and all these different shape enemies. Mm. By the end of it, I figured out how to use the APIs to do like gradients and stuff. So it was all pretty cool procedural graphics, moving star field. And then I coded up like eight to ten different kinds of enemy AI. So you have enemies that follow paths, enemies that follow you. Enemies that teleport in and out of different spots on the screen and at the end of each level the enemies you killed give you points that would let you upgrade your ship so it had this whole kind of RPG upgrade system like six unique bosses and yeah that was my senior project and uh, I went to a high school where you know it wasn't a bunch of overachievers so my teachers were pretty blown away by it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow.
0: So... During the time of, were you just coding? Were you reading books? Were you, I guess there weren't too many online courses at that time. So, what were you doing? Anything other than just just grinding away?
1: Mostly just grinding away. I mean, I started with Visual Basic, and then the following year, I did the AP Java course, and then my teacher who taught all the programming courses said, hey, why don't you do a couple independent studies? So I got a book on C++ and I just kind of worked my way through that as a class. Then she got another book for me to do C Sharp. And C Sharp was pretty easy coming from Visual Basic because when I was doing Visual Basic, it was when VB.NET was starting. And so I already knew a bit of .NET framework stuff. And C Sharp was just like different syntax but the same function calls. It all just kind of flowed really easily. Uh, We'll talk about
0: IGDA, or the Indie Game Developer Association, for those who don't know. And we'll talk specifically about uh, the Washington, D.C. chapter, of which you are the treasurer,
1: right? Currently, yeah. And just a correction, it's not an indie game thing. It's the International Game Developer Association. So it covers Uh, indies as well as, you know, employees at AAA Studios. In fact, a lot of their money comes from studios paying a large lump sum to have membership for all of their developers.
0: With that being said, uh, with the DC chapter, what do you guys uh, – I guess what does a normal operation look like for the the DC chapter?
1: So the DC chapter is pretty interesting because we are mostly comprised of people doing indie stuff, moonlighting when they work a boring government job. The only real studio in this area is Bethesda. And I've heard a lot of talk that Bethesda explicitly tells their employees they are not allowed to come to our meetings because they're so scared of their IP getting out.
0: <laughs> they do keep it pretty lock and tight.
1: But yeah, I mean, our chapter, we normally organize it around two meetups a month where the first one will be an indie social night. People will bring out the games they're working on, kind of show them off, play each other's games, have a couple of drinks, you know, catch up, shoot the shit. And then we try to do yeah. a speaker night every fourth Tuesday, and we just try and bring in as many different you know views of the industry that we can get a hold of. So we do Indies that are mm-hmm. making games, but we'll also do people in federal government who are using games to solve interesting problems. I mean, we had a meetup a couple months ago with the uh, what are they call it the Washington Justice, I believe, which is our eSports League. So it's a lot of fun.:
0: Is eSports popular in dC?
1: Um, they're in the Overwatch League, and I'm not oh. sure. I don't know if they're actually that popular yet, but, you know, maybe if they get some wins, it'll grow and they'll become more popular. I'm always rooting for them. Mm-hmm.
0: Sticking with IGDA, what led to your first board position?
1: Hmm. I guess that story kind of comes out of a different story, which is uh, Gaming in Public, the other meetup group I run. And when I first got to the D.C. area, obviously I didn't know anybody. And someone suggested to me that I look at this site, meetup.com. And I started looking through there for video game related things. And I saw this gaming group, Gaming in Public, and I went to a couple meetings. And it was run by Jacob Clark. He started Gaming in Public as a way to sort of just get people who are interested in games to come meet up at bars and play games, talk about games, And he even did some cool talks. He got Rami Ismail, the indie who made uh, Super Crate Box and Nuclear Throne, to come do a talk one night. And I thought, wow, this is all really awesome. So I really got into that group. And eventually, through that, we started realizing there was this other group, IGDA DC. I had never really heard of IGDA before. And the local chapter was kind of in in a low state. They weren't having very many meetings. The people who were on the board were all kind of leaving the area. And so a couple people were trying to get it started again, and I started attending some meetings, and they were like, hey, you seem really into this. Do you want to run for a board position? And that's kind of what led to that. Interesting. So why did you accept? I mean, why wouldn't I accept? I love doing things that connect me with people who like games, people who make games. I like any community surrounding gaming. It's always fun people, you know? They play for work and fun. So what could be bad about that? True. So as the treasurer, is your
0: job difficult to maintain a healthy budget?
1: Well, considering we have almost no budget, it's actually a pretty easy job. (laughs) Because we don't actually take a lot of donations. Like, we don't actively solicit donations for the chapter. We've only done that a couple mm-hmm. times to put on this one event we do every year called District Arcade, but even that event, we've got it to a point where we don't need that many funds to do it. Recently, the global IGDA like head organization has started giving chapters a small budget to work with, so managing that has been a little bit of fun at least. It mostly just goes to operating costs that we were paying out of pocket before, but... It's nice to have that and set up procedures around it. Make sure we're keeping it all above board.
0: Before we transition to your current project, uh, I haven't known you too long, but the two games you developed that I've played were in a category of you know playing with friends in a party-like environment with respect to drink cards and the art party club. Furthermore, every get-together I've attended at your place has been well-organized and a lot of fun. Given your local proactivity in IGDA and the DC area and other groups, uh, it seems to me that one of your favorite things to do is bring people together, whether it be with your games or games in general. What is it about bringing people together around gaming that illuminates some of your true characteristics?
1: I guess I kind of was getting into, you put it much more eloquently than I was just trying to. I mean, I love people who like games because they're so much fun, and you can always have a good time with them. I have sort of leaned more into local multiplayer games, because it's just a way to sort of get everyone focused on the same thing. Everyone's having fun connecting with each other. I just, uh, you know, really like to build a community off of play, really. Play is a lot of fun, and as I get older, my love for it doesn't seem to diminish at all.
0: Yeah, I think some of some of my best gaming memories is you know being at friends' houses and you know doing late night, you know first person shooter LAN parties, stuff like that. It's it's usually the better memories are with other gamers, and I think it just it's it's I guess a healthier aspect
1: to always be with other folks while you game. For sure. Yeah, I mean, oh man, I miss the days of Halo One, four player split screen. <laughs> We'd all just yell at each other and say, you were screen peeking, you were screen peeking. We'd get so heated, but you know, it's all in good fun, and at the end of the day, you're all coming back the next day to play again. Yeah, I always yell, don't
0: hate the don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> <laughs> Learn how to do it. <laughs> there's, there's no way of getting around it unless we do like the cardboard <laughs> cutout with everybody have one, qu- one quarter of the screen. Yeah. <laughs> Great. The the best part was like I think yeah, the Xbox One and Halo one or two where they had the LAN we'd have, you know, two systems, eight controllers and we'd have to make sure the LAN cord was like twenty feet long, one going upstairs and downstairs. It was it was crazy. Oh yeah. Kids will never know. My kid will never know the the horrors of trying to organize eight dudes with all controllers and systems and games working properly.
1: (laughs) <laughs> One time we did that at a friend's house, but you could actually land up to four Xboxes. So we had like a 16-player LAN oh, party right. all yeah. over his house, like four different rooms with four people in each. <laughs> oh. It was madness. Jeez. So much fun.
0: Yeah, everyone had to bring their own controller. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start with a quick summary of your most recent project, VR Party Club.
1: So VR Party Club... It's kind of a shameless Mario Party clone that the goal is to bring all the best parts about VR into one place. You know, there, when we started it about two years ago now, there was so much going on in VR. Nobody really knew exactly where it was going to go, but I was playing so much cool stuff. And I was like, I want to show this to people, but I don't want to have them learn a very complex game and then take them out and put them in another very complex game. I wanted to give them, like, simple bite-sized versions of all the best stuff. Shooting, climbing, like, ducking and dodging, catching, throwing. And we were already making a bunch of mini-games for this MagFest Versus project we were doing. And I was just like, let's turn this into something. Let's just use the Mario Party model, add a board with some dice you can roll. That's basically its own tutorial where you pick up these dice, you throw them, and you're like, oh, I get this. It's like the first thing you do and it's so natural that i've seen kids as young as like four years old do it easily and then from there you yeah. just you know build on it you have little interactions then all of a sudden you're able to shoot at robots and duck behind the bar as they're shooting back and it's just been so great to kind of build that like first experience for people
0: yeah it's it's great to to build something like that for vr and it helps i guess you know, having a party club and or rather having a game that enables more than one person to play really kind of helps the uh, ecosystem of VR in a way.
1: True. That was another goal that I thought is I have this VR headset. I don't know anybody else who has one. I need to make a game that lets me share it with them. You know, we take turns rather than just everybody watch me play. And so, yeah, we just made a game where you roll dice, move around the board, play a mini game, take the headset off, pass it along, and you do that in rounds, just like Mario Party, until at the very end, whoever has the most stars wins. Basically,
0: yeah, it was. I played it at your last uh, party at your place, and it was really fun. That uh, it all kinds of different games. You're, you know, dodging spiked rooms. There's, you know, there's like a Kind of like a frisbee slash pong <laughs> game. It's they're not typical games. It's that's what I love about it because it's like there's games there's things about it that are familiar, but you you're put into a different kind of environment. So it's it's kind of cool. It's a mix of of I know what I'm doing, but I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, the we time. try
1: to make the interactions very familiar, but then make the whole experience very new because you know people are used to games where they're looking at a TV. This is like, but look, the world is surrounding you. You look in any direction and here's like a neon colored world of a beach somewhere to the game you were talking about. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think I think that was my favorite because I didn't it took me a little while to to get the goal uh, to to be able to block and or catch the shot of the AI player, which I think
1: was really cool how well the AI worked on that, by the way because it made it pretty damn challenging. <laughs> yeah, so actually it's funny about that one is we made that because one of our friends just kept telling us for probably a solid year, I love wind jammers. You need to make wind jammers. And nobody knows what wind jammers is. Apparently they just revived it but for like 30 years since the first one came out or whatever, nobody had heard of wind jammers. This guy loved it because he was like the only person in the world who played it. And he's like I want VR wind jammers. So finally we decided to give him VR wind jammers.
0: Coming up in the second half of our conversation, we'll discuss the state of VR, Callan's policy of releasing early and releasing often, the forever and beta business model, and we'll wrap it up with some fun lightning questions. In the meantime, for more information on Callan, his exciting VR game, VR Party Club, Game Jam, Secret Projects, and a ton of other things, head to the accompanying blog at betaK.com. The link will be in the show notes. If you or someone you know has an interesting story revolving around the indie game industry, and would like to be a podcast guest, please email heroes at betak.com. And now for the second half of our conversation with indie developer, Calen Shaw. So how would you describe the state of VR? It kind of seems like it's relying on indies to keep it going, but of course this question was typed before Alex was released. So (laughs) that question... (laughs) Uh, So I guess maybe prior to like, a week ago, it seemed like indies were keeping VR afloat.
1: Yeah, I mean, that also comes down a lot to what your definition of indie really is. Like, there's a company, Ready at Dawn Studios, and I don't have it pulled up right in front of me, but they did some, like, you wouldn't call it AAA, but it was definitely, like, a well-known game. And, you know, it's brought it up now. It's former members of Naughty Dog and Blizzard... They did some ports of God of War. And so they were like a pretty big company. Oh, and they made The Order 1886. But then they do this game called uh, Lone Echo. And it's just like one of the first things to come out on Oculus. And it's this great single player, like very atmospheric narrative. And then they follow it up with like a multiplayer game, Echo Arena, where you're playing zero G like frisbee soccer kind of stuff and it's just like so good and it's like you know if you want to call them indie they're a really solid indie but i think they're the kind of size company that has the resources to do something well but also they're not too big that they can still take risks The big joke going on for i guess since 2016 or so when oculus released their product the big joke has always been vr is dead and Mm. The reports of VR's death have been greatly exaggerated. It's not <laughs> yeah. going to overnight become the biggest thing in the world like an iPhone, but it's been growing slowly and steadily, and I think we're actually pretty close to that hockey stick trajectory. We might be in the like curve where it's starting to shoot up now, especially with Alex coming out. If you go look right now, VR mm-hmm. headsets are sold out everywhere. I see a lot of people on Facebook complaining that they've been looking for months and can't get one. People are selling them for double their price on eBay. So I think right now with this big AAA release, it's really showing everyone like, no, VR's been here, it's been growing, and now it's really established its foothold.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of industries, and in any industry, if you have some massive success... People gravitate, gravitate toward it, and with Alex releasing, with this, this massive exposure, all of these awesome videos coming out about it, I think, you know, this is a tipping point, I would say, probably for the VR industry, for sure.
1: I mean, I think Alex is just, the thing that we've really been missing is, we've had AAA quality content in VR, but it's been small. Like, one of the first uh, Oculus games was Robo Recall, made by Epic, and it's just great but it's like three levels long. It's really a long tech demo with all sorts of cool mechanics and interactions, but there's no real game there to sink your teeth into for weeks on end. And then with Alex, it's like, I see a lot of people who've been in VR since the beginning complain like, oh, they're not really breaking any new ground. This has all been done before. And I'm like, no, but don't you see? No one's actually done it well. I mean, there's been good bits here and there, but this is a complete package like 15-hour AAA game where you're in VR and it performs great and it feels great and you just lose yourself in that kind of game. You just leave the world and you're in that world. And man, that is a scary world in Alex. Oh my gosh. That <laughs> head crab's attacking me from all directions. <laughs> all
0: right, so moving along, still sort of in the same respect. Uh, you had said that your partner in making VR Club said that you had released too early and your response was release early release often what do you mean by that
1: well this just goes back to i guess my whole life is being either a solo or a very small team indie i'm working on something and i'm just excited to show it off to people i show it to my friends when it barely even runs like i have to sit there and like hit secret keyboard commands to keep things from crashing and then once i've got something like moderately stable i'll email it off to other friends and be like, hey, let me know if this works for you. Let me know if you have any problems. And it's really, Mm -hmm. I guess, just the lack of a QA department. I just lean on all my friends to do my QA in some extent, but also I'm just so happy to share what I'm making. And with Steam Early Access, I guess it remains to be seen if we release too early, but I think it's great to just have it out there and be able to show it to someone at a convention and say yeah it's in early access if you like it go get it leave us a review let us know what you like what you dislike I just love that sort of conversation with the player I don't want to just put a product out there and then turn my back and be like well you either like it or you don't I want to hear I want to change what I'm making to suit good suggestions I get it's just so much fun to do it that way
0: Yeah, versus developing for two years and then two months before release, then you start (laughs) getting testers and betas and stuff.
1: Right. I mean, you know, if you have the skills to do that and do it well, by all means, go ahead. But most people think they can and they cannot.
0: Yeah, it's very hard to do. I mean, AAAs sometimes can falter doing it that that way as well. So that's why you're seeing more games. This is kind of rolling into my follow-up question to this, uh, being... A lot of games like, you know, Fortnite and now the Call of Duty Warfare, the the Battle Royale genre is like forever early access and it's like a living beta almost where you just get updates uh, forever and you never pay for anything unless you want to. Do you think that that's sort of like a way that the industry is sort of going or is this sort of like a fad?
1: Oh, no. I mean, what you're describing is basically the games as a service model and I'd say that was probably pioneered by MMOs, but outside of MMOs, you didn't see it that much until you had mobile games. And since mobile games are free to download, their whole revenue model is these constant updates to try and keep you into it, keep you spending money. And I think Fortnite is kind of the ultimate lesson of traditional style gaming, taking lessons from mobile and applying them to something that You know, it's a shooter at its heart. We've been playing shooters since we were kids, but this is something different. You know, the world's changing every few months. They have seasons. They have concerts in there or something. It's like a living, breathing world, and that's, I think, what has made them the biggest game of all time, I think, at least in terms of revenue.
0: Yeah. What place does this, we'll call it a forever in beta model, have in the indie dev community, if any, and... Are there any successful titles using this model that can come to mind?
1: Hmm. You know, I tend to be sort of the opposite of that. I really like to call my games done and move on, but there are a lot of indies. I mean, I think a good example might be uh, Shovel Knight. Shovel Knight just kept Mm -hmm. getting updates, like new characters, but not just a new character. That new character has new moves that then transform the way the normal world works or they'll get their own completely new levels. And I
0: think, so it's not just like a new sword (laughs) or a new piece
1: of, right. I mean, I think there's, I don't know, Kevin, the guy I developed VR party club with, he was telling me about this the one day that some of the characters in shovel Knight like get new things. Like it sounds simple on paper, like, Oh, this guy can fly or something, but all of a sudden it changes the entire way you progress through the game. And I think a lot of indies really like doing that, just kind of like continuously refining what they've built. And especially if you have millions of people who love your game and want to keep playing it, I think that's a good way to continue, you know, profiting off the work you've already done.
0: Yeah, I would agree. You've made it to the lightning round. Oh boy. Quick questions, sort of designed for short to medium answers. Uh, lightweight, uh, except for like the last one that might be a doozy. Mm-hmm. Number one, in the last six months, what has been your favorite gaming or game development-related purchase between $50 and $100, and why?
1: I want to say Alex, but I haven't beaten it yet, so that would be kind of a cop-out answer. Um, oh, it wait, last six favorite. months? I think that fits Death Stranding. Death Stranding's like the best thing I've ever played in my life. I'm going to go with Death Stranding. Really? Yeah, that game. What did you like most about it? I, it's just so it's so familiar, and it's so stripped down. I mean, you can't describe it in a way that really does it justice. It's like, yeah, you know, you, you walk around this world and deliver packages, and walking is really hard. <laughs> well, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> yeah, but you just got to play it. It's like this almost transcendent experience. It's like if I was tripping acid and playing like a really bad game, I would feel like the way I feel in Death Stranding.
0: (laughs) Interesting take.
1: Also, wow, how prescient was Hideo Kojima talking about a world where everyone's locked in their houses and the only people are delivery men? That's... Like a month before (laughs) this thing broke out in China.
0: A week before... I got caught saying, I'm sick of these groundhog days, I think, to a coworker or my wife. And a week later, we were in isolation. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'll never make that comment again. (laughs) Lightning round, question number two. If you could have one loading screen in a game, which game would it be? And what would the loading screen look like or say?
1: So the thing is, I kind of hate loading screens and I do my best to not have them ever in my games.
0: Yeah. It's more of a, an old school.
1: question. Well, it's I guess. more like if I had an <laughs> artist that could produce good art for my games, then I would have a lot of art to load and I would need a loading screen. <laughs> but I really like in Splatoon, whenever you're searching for a match online they let you play this little like mini game. This is on the Wii U version. I think they removed it for the switch, but I'm not sure. Maybe not where you're like just playing this little jumper game and like that's your loading screen game basically. And I just thought that was so fun. I played so much of that waiting for online matches. I would want something like that, like a little mini game.
0: So you would want a small mini game as your loading. Yeah, screen though game. I
1: think I heard once somebody has a patent on that idea and no one's allowed to do it. It's weird. Oh my god. Why would you do that? Because this world is run by lawyers, man. Yeah, that's true. Favorite
0: gaming food and or drinks? Snacks, whatever. Like
1: to eat while I'm playing? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I feel like such a basic bitch, but man, Doritos and Mountain Dew really do hit the spot <laughs> like 100% of the time. Was- now my favorite in-game food... Have you seen the food in Final Fantasy XV? I want to know who made the renderer for that stuff because I want to like lick my TV screen looking at that stuff. It looks amazing. It <laughs> looks better than real-life food. Also, Monster Hunter oh, really? does that really well. The new Monster Hunter world. It has really good rendered food.
0: Oh, my God, yeah. I just Google-imaged Final Fantasy XV food.
1: <laughs> right? It's like better than <laughs> real food. real,
0: dude. Gosh, freaking, what's that chef's name? Gordon Ramsay couldn't do better than that. Listeners, Google Final Fantasy 15. Yeah, I just did it now
1: too, and now I'm hungry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right? I need to go eat. That was a bad move. All right. Let's get out of that. Uh, Final lightning round question. A hip shot idea for a game jam. The category is illumination. The more you have the worse it is
1: Ooh. so like skin cancer simulator you got to run from shadow to shadow because you have very sensitive <laughs> skin
0: <laughs> that was quick as hell you man. know what's
1: funny is the first <laughs> thing i thought uh is this old game boy game boktai where it had a sensor in the cartridge and you had to play the game in the sun to charge yourself up and apparently it had puzzles based on like walking between the light. So that immediately came to mind it was like but the opposite of that.
0: All right, well that's all the questions that I have generated for you sir. Is there anywhere you would like to point folks to find your current project or projects.
1: Yeah, you can download VR Party Club in Steam. It's On Steam, it's in early access, or you can look up the website at vrparty.club
0: Where are you at on social media, if you are?
1: I'm at Callan Shaw on Twitter, and we just launched our new VR Party Club Facebook page, so give us a like. You'll be in the first like 20, probably. But yeah, I hope to be posting there more. I try to stay off Twitter, you know, it's bad for your health, but If you reach out there, I'll get a notification and I'll find you.
0: All right. All right. Well, thank you, sir, for being guest numero uno on the K podcast. Yes, I made
1: it. Number one.
0: That's a wrap, folks. Thanks again goes out to indie developer Callan Shaw for being our first guest. All of his links will be in the show notes. Thanks also goes out to Brandon Nieves for supplying this hip chip tune we've been jamming to this episode. If you would like your music featured in a future episode, email theheroes at betacade.com. And thank you for listening to our first podcast episode. The extended interview blog piece is up on the website at betacade.com, where you can also view the show notes and sign up for our monthly indie industry newsletter. The newsletter summarizes all of Betacade's activities in the indie world, To get the next podcast episode sent straight to you, click subscribe. Catch you next time. Until then, happy gaming.